From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Building community and accumulating assets is a long-term play. And I don't mean monetarily, I mean it relationship assets, relationship equity, and then being able to share that equity with others. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Margaret Malloy, CMO of Siegel and Gale. Margaret spends a lot of time thinking about brands. In fact, her fingertips are on some of the most recognizable brands of our era. It might surprise you to learn that Margaret got her first lessons in her craft on a small farm in rural Ireland. Early in her career, she drew a fascinating connection between the community spirit that permeated her childhood and the meaningful connections the world's most admired companies forge with their customers. Today, Margaret takes us on the journey of an immigrant who found her home in the Big Apple and her calling in building great brands. Let's jump into the conversation. Well, Margaret, I have really been looking forward to this conversation. Justin, delighted to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. We go way back. We obviously went to business school together, so I've known you for a while. Interestingly enough, as I was thinking about this discussion we were going to have, one of Aesop's fables came to mind, which is the city mouse and the country mouse. Why would that apply to Margaret? Well, I think that will soon become clear. But first of all, if you had to identify with a city mouse or a country mouse, what would be your vote? City mouse, definitely. <laughs> all right. Tell us a little bit about why that's the case. Certainly. And, and I appreciate the analogy. That's great fun. I grew up in rural Ireland, small village, probably a thousand people, eldest of six children on a farm, went to school for gosh, from kindergarten to sixth grade in a school with two teachers. So all, all my early school career was in a very small community and, and a rural one. So very much the country mouse. And then upon graduating college, I got on a plane and went to New York City and have been in the United States ever since and chose that context and, and truly love it, but also feel very privileged to have had the benefit of growing up in a very different setting. Well, tell us a little bit about what life was like living in the country and growing up in the country. So as you can imagine, when you grow up in a, in a big family, in a small country situation, it's very familial. Uh, community really matters. Everything that you've probably read about is true. You get a lot of chores. I was the eldest of six, so there was some expectation that I would uh, perform my chores with diligence and show a good example to my siblings. There was also a recognition around- Now, now these chores aren't taking out the trash and doing things like, these are real jobs that have to get done. Yes, absolutely. I mean, things like herding cows and bringing in the cows to be milked, although I tended to avoid those and stuck more to making sandwiches. But they were they were legitimate chores that contributed to our well-being, as it were. And, and it was understood that from a very early age, work mattered, work ethic mattered, and also balancing that with your homework. Because my parents, given their circumstances, which was very modest, they didn't finish primary school. They didn't have a sixth grade education. So they valued providing that opportunity for their children, but there also was the reality that work had to get done. So I grew up in that context. Um, I also grew up in Ireland, which was a wonderful place to grow up as a child, a very values-driven society, a, a society that valued education and that always thought in terms of possibilities. I, I felt at that point in my life, there was a sense that, we were in a generation that had access to education that our parents did not, many of us. So there was a sense that you had to avail of that if you were fortunate enough to have the kind of skills that could take advantage of academics. I heard you mention the word community a few times, and I'd love for you to maybe share what community meant for you as a child. 
Yes, it's, it's such an interesting observation because community is something that comes through with me in everything I touch. As a child, it meant that every family helped each other. So whether it was at the haymaking season, for example, there were a few days of fine weather. So every community member got together and helped the neighboring farm save the hay. And that was a metaphor as well as a reality for us in the sense that there was always, we were in this together as a community. Now that I reflect on it with a little more maturity, I realized that some of the tenets of that that are important to me still is the distinction between someone's career and their worth. So people with different levels of access, for example, and, and I even today think about that, that the dignity of every person is really important and not to conflate someone's worth with their education, which may have been a function of access. And even today, I really am always trying to see the person beyond the credential. And, and that's something that's rooted in community. Another component of community is this idea of everyone can contribute to each other's success. So it's almost an abundance mindset. And similarly, I think about this today when I work in the environment, I think about how can everyone win and grow the pie versus thinking of a zero-sum mentality. And the other aspect of community that was important in the context of Ireland was reputation. So my parents were very strict, um, very Catholic upbringing, very traditional. But one of the things that was most important to them when they got our school reports, much to my disgust, was they were less interested in your grades and much more interested in the commentary, the narrative from the teachers. And I was emphasizing the grades because invariably I was quite proud of those. But they were more interested in how myself and my siblings comported ourselves as members of the classroom community. And uh, at the time, I'm not sure I quite appreciated that distinction, but on reflection, even applying that in the work context, as we've worked in different settings, understanding that your measure of contribution isn't just your individual output, it's how you contribute to the community at large. So, Profound lessons on reflection, um, interesting experiences in the living. I think about that community and how each person brings something unique and it enriches the community. And to your point, the emphasis is not on the individual. It's about on the collective whole and how each person is, is contributing to that. So I understand that one of your unique contributions, you were, you were uh, particularly well versed in the verse if I can say, and at recitations. Do you have anything you could share with us from a recitation perspective? I'm going to put you on the bot on the spot here, Margaret. <laughs> wow, that, that's an interesting question. I think we should preface it, though, in full disclosure and okay. say that I had zero talent in music and in <laughs> dance. And in the Irish context, to not be able to play an instrument or to be able to sing or dance were serious limitations. So... Absent those talents, I had to go and find something else that I was better suited to. So, yes, your research is right. I did um, spend a lot of my free time doing recitations. And that's because in that culture, I didn't have a television until I was practically a teenager. So for entertainment, we entertained each other with performances. So I will, if you'll indulge me, um, offer you a verse from... Absolutely. Okay, let's let's try. This will be a first for me, I have to say. This one I chose was The Touch of the Master's Hand by Myra Brooks Welch. And I'll give you a verse and then your listeners can find the final verse themselves and uh, take that as a call to action after they give us a review on the podcast. So here goes. Twas battered and scarred and the auctioneer thought it's scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but held it up with a smile. What am I bidden, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two. Two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, 
From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as caroling angels sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, and who'll make it two? Two thousand, and who'll make it three? Three three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We do not quite understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of a master's hand. Well, I love that one. And you didn't know this, Margaret, but my father used to recite that to me when I was a child. And I could actually finish that final verse from memory. I won't do that. It's a wonderful poem. And I love your idea to invite the listeners to to come and find that for themselves. Thank you for sharing that, though. Thank you. And I think, again, the opportunity you present to all of us in the podcast is for reflection. And as I reflect on my comments earlier, perhaps uh, unknowingly, the reason I selected this poem was because it speaks to that notion of an individual's worth being more than sometimes we perceive at first glance. Well, and I love that metaphor of the violin being the individual. And so many times we look at the dust that covers the the violin. We listen to perhaps the out-of-tune music that's played. And the reality is that in the midst of the right people, potential is unlocked. And I think it's a wonderful thing to remember. Well, on that note, uh, you, you, to some extent, were going your own way, even from an early age while you may not have been up there dancing or singing, you found your own swim lane, as we like to say. Tell me a little bit more about academics and the role that that played in your life. I was fortunate in the talents I were, was given to be a good student. And I was a diligent student as well. And in the Irish education system, at that time, it wasn't very nuanced. Your access to university education was predicated solely on exam performance. And that served me very well. And I'm grateful for that. And something that sticks with me in terms of my parents, while they did not benefit from that access, they recognized the opportunity it afforded to us. And I remember as a child, my parents buying the World Book Encyclopedias. And a a door-to-door salesperson came to our home. And I was enthralled by these gorgeous bound books that arrived in our home. And that really was my introduction to expanded opportunity. And very grateful to my parents because the struggles they endured to be able to fund that purchase were non-trivial. And the funny thing is, that was a purchase ahead of the TV. So we had encyclopedias before we had TV. I love the name, The World Book. As a marketer, I can appreciate a good name. And that was just a marvelous a marvelous name for an encyclopedia series. Yes, absolutely. Opens up the world to you. Well, that's right. And I think, again, when you think about it, that's the case. At first blush, it's just, my gosh, it, it, it fuels those sense of possibilities and, you know, for better or for worse, without the distraction of television, my other alternative is quite limited. I had the the series, it was the Funk and Wagnall series, which I don't think was nearly as strong a brand name as the World Book. But I remember my parents bought these on installment, so they paid for them one at a time as they came in. And I remember every month or so, the new encyclopedia would arrive, you got A and then you got B. And it would go on, obviously on through Z. And each month you could open this up and you could see all these different subjects. For a long time, that was kind of the library that you had that gave you access to the rest of the world. There was no internet. The, you know, books, buying books was expensive. And so you had these 26 books in your house that you would use to explore the world. Right. And for me, what it really taught me to understand was the benefit of curiosity 
and the opportunity presented by books, but those lessons translate to leadership as well. And what I've learned as a marketer is it's vitally important to understand a subject deeply yourself in order to be able to explain it simply. And we we may later touch on my role today, but simplicity is core to that, but it requires deep understanding. I think that experience with the cyclopedias has also taught me of, in terms of academics, the opportunity we all have to toggle between teacher and student. And I find myself continually toggling, even to this day, those roles in my life as a leader, as a marketer, and, and just as a curious person. So you've talked a lot about curiosity as well. I know that the United States for you was a point of curiosity, if not fascination. Tell me a little bit about the U.S., why it was so intriguing to you, and and was that a sentiment shared by everyone in your social circle? Wow. Yes. So from an early age, I was intrigued by the United States. I recall in 1984, President Reagan visiting Ireland And that was my first real introduction to America. We had this person with tremendous poise. And yet, in his experience, as he related, he was an immigrant or a son of immigrants. He had heritage in Ireland. And that opened my curiosity and interest in the country of the United States. And again, spoke to the possibilities that country could afford to us. But there was a tension for me in that because my family had no great love for America. There was no allure given by the United States. And that's because my grand aunt, the sister of my grandmother, boarded the Titanic never to arrive in the United States. So she perished on that maiden voyage. So for our family, the United States was not a romantic location in any way. But yet I continue to manage that tension in my mind. And years later, when I boarded a plane to go to the United States, part of me was thinking of her voyage and my opportunity to perhaps give life to an opportunity that she did not have. And I feel tremendously fortunate to have had that chance. And I really love this country. And I think there's so much to appreciate about America. And sometimes it's very easy as a foreigner, to find the opportunity to critique. And of course, every country can do better, but there's so much about the United States that I really cherish. I'm always excited to someone who comes to the United States after having created a perception of the United States. I know one of our major exports is is our television, our movies. Did what you discovered when you landed in the United States coincide with the vision that you had of the United States that was perhaps influenced by uh, the media? Well, I did mention enjoying President Reagan's visit to Ireland, but my diet of American culture was a lot less highbrow. (laughs) I, I was intrigued by Dallas. I was intrigued by dynasty and the glamour of the ladies and the lifestyle they led. So that was my America. And of course, the movies that were centered in New York. So my first experience coming to America, getting out of that plane at JFK, having no family here, which was quite unusual for an Irish person coming to America. My first reaction is, it's just like in the movies. New York was so familiar because of the yellow cabs and because of so much we are exposed to. The big, however, occurred months later when I was sent on trips outside New York. And I realized, wait, this is America too. So that was the biggest education for me, that America was much more multifaceted than New York, which I had seen as synonymous with America. Well, that's why in the United States, we had a very diverse plate of of television programming. You would have watched Dynasty and you would have watched Dallas. But then the next show that came on was the Dukes of Hazzard. So that would share that would show you the other facets of the United States that we are very proud of. You I'm glad I've never seen the Dukes of Hazzard before. For those that have seen seen the show, it's it's one of the things where you you kind of hope that uh, the rest of the the world hasn't seen it. But uh uh, point well taken that that is a very small slice of the United States and the and the culture um, that you'll find here. So tell us a little bit about 
one of your first jobs in the United States. I know that Telecom Ireland gave you the opportunity to experience the U.S., but also combine that with your love for your your native country. Yes. So my job at Telecom Ireland was a marketing manager, and I was responsible for promoting Ireland as a location for pan-European call centers. Back in the 90s, that was a hot industry. 800 numbers. Many of those calls were processed in Ireland for Europe and indeed for the U.S., And my job was essentially to promote Ireland as a location. What I learned from that job was the importance of having passion for the mission of wherever I choose to work. And the mission there for me was very visceral. It was helping my fellow countrymen and my colleagues of my own age profile get jobs. And that very simple motivation really inspired me to work hard and be a very authentic ambassador for the product. And that has stood with me throughout. In all of the jobs that I've been fortunate enough to have, one of the first questions I ask myself is, do I subscribe to the mission? And when I do, I find the job is a calling, uh, which gives me so much passion. Was it easy for you to connect what you were doing in the United States to the opportunities that you were unlocking back in Ireland? extremely easy because I believed in the product. I knew the caliber of my peers who would be the employees of these companies. So I was had no doubt that I was selling a product that was high value. And then when I would travel back to Ireland to visit these call center operations, because Ireland was very successful during this period, it became known as the Celtic Tiger. And it was such a joy to see these companies doing very well and my fellow countrymen really contributing to the success of the company. So it all became full circle. And that experience, of course, feeds on itself and gives you more confidence in the product. That's Margaret Malloy, CMO of Siegel & Gale. When we come back, Margaret shares her perspective on how the concept of brand has evolved over the past decades and how the best companies embrace cutting edge trends. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. Today I'm joined by Margaret Malloy, CMO of Siegel and Gale. Early in her career, Margaret discovered how her understanding of community made her a better marketer. Today, She's formed an extensive point of view on the topic. It's a perspective that has helped some of the most recognizable companies in the world build even stronger identities. Let's get back to the conversation. I go back to that experience you had as a child where you were part of a community, every member mattered. You brought that with you into your professional life and even in your your first jobs, you weren't thinking, what's in it for me? how can I advance? You were thinking, how can I contribute to this community? Here's the part that I can play. And I know there are so many other people playing parts as well. I think that's an accurate observation. Also, I would say it harkens back to this notion of representation and reputation. I mentioned earlier, a lesson in community is you're only as good as your reputation. And I felt a responsibility. I was an ambassador. In my mind, I was representing the colleague that you would get should you set up an operation in Ireland as an American company. So that was important too, that being a good ambassador for the brand. As I, as an American have thought about the, you mentioned this phenomenon of the Celtic tiger and the perspective I had from the United States, I also saw the growth. My perception was financially, it makes sense for people to move to Ireland. There are um, tax benefits associated with it. It's obviously a gateway to Europe. But what I didn't appreciate was the mindset that all of the citizens of Ireland were bringing to this collectively. The revolution in education that was happening, the outreach of Ireland to the United States to market those opportunities. It was a very nuanced and sophisticated approach to opening up a new market and advertising the benefits of it. And when you when you see all of the pieces and how they came together and realize that the people at the end of the day were really driving that, it's really an inspirational story. I think so. And it also speaks to the evolution of a brand. 
because the brand that you associated with the country of Ireland, I would surmise, was a place of hospitality, um, beautiful scenery, nice place for tourism. And the evolution there was it's also a high-tech hub, and as you correctly articulated, a gateway to Europe. And again, the lesson of that is interesting to me more broadly. How do brands evolve and how can a consumer have a duality in their minds as they think about a brand? In other words, it doesn't negate Ireland's attractiveness as a holiday destination, as a place of heritage and culture to have it also be a commercially viable tech hub. There are very interesting, broader lessons in that experience. So you were really at that nexus point when Ireland was evolving, the brand was evolving, and it was becoming a tech powerhouse. I know that one of your jobs out of business school was at Siebel Systems, one of the early B2B technology pioneers. Tell me a little bit about that experience and how that shaped you as a, as a professional marketer. So I will say I loved my experience at Siebel Systems. I went there straight off to business school, very fortunate to be part of a cohort of talented and ambitious colleagues. The biggest lesson I take away from the Siebel experience is the importance of values. So you'll recall, Justin, there were some values that we held dear at Siebel. One was a bias for action. And that translated, in my view, into great accountability. If you were in a meeting and someone committed to doing something, there was never a doubt that that would get done. So that was really important, the notion of the values and how they translate into behavior and culture. Another takeaway was the benefit of sales and marketing alignment. In subsequent roles I've had, and in talking to other B2B marketing colleagues, there's often this conversation about a disconnect between sales and marketing. That's a concept I fail to understand because at Siebel Systems, that was unambiguous. Sales and marketing alignment was core to the organization. And in many respects, I take that blueprint with me wherever I go. A third lesson that's important is more cautionary, however. And that is the notion of taking a very broad look at a market. So when I left Siebel Systems upon the Oracle acquisition, shortly before that time, Salesforce came into its own with a very different model. And at Siebel Systems, the product model was very much an enterprise on-premise solution predominantly. And the operating assumption was that Data was too important. Nobody would put it in the cloud, as it were. And that operating assumption, to some degree, compromised the success of the company, in my view, and certainly created an opportunity for Salesforce to emerge as a very formidable player in the CRM space. So the cautionary note there is to challenge your assumptions from time to time, to be mindful of hubris, because there are other ways. And I think that's a lesson that's worth taking in addition to some of the very positive operating lessons that I identified and experienced at Siebel. We've talked a lot about Salesforce on the show. We've had some executives on as well. I know that my experience was initially one of dismissing Salesforce. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that, but you're absolutely right. When you are when you are steeped in a culture, when you are surrounded by a mindset, it's very difficult to get outside of that and entertain other perspectives. And I think as executives in particular, it's just so mandatory that we do that, that we entertain these other ideas. Otherwise, um, we know the outcomes of the stories and, and, and how they end up. Exactly. And I think that's back to being vulnerable and being open to others' perspectives and always challenging yourself. I feel sometimes as a, I identify as an immigrant and as a foreigner in this country, sometimes you're willing to do that because you don't have as firm a footing. So you're more open to other inputs and maybe less likely to think you're, you've, you've figured it out. At least that's been my experience. Now you're at Siegel & Gale, you're the CMO there. Tell us a little bit about the firm and your role in the firm. 
So Siegel & Gale, one of the world's leading brand strategy, design, and experience firms, we're an agency. We work with some of the world's most wonderful brands to help leaders essentially build brands. The most important thing to know about the agency is our ethos. We very much believe that simple is smart. So the designs we create, the experiences we help our clients build, the language, the strategies, everything is predicated on getting to simplicity. But simplicity, not in a reductive way. Simplicity as the intersection of clarity and surprise. The goal being to help brands create experiences that the user says, oh, I wish I would have thought of that, or that's exactly how I want it to be. Not merely purely just clear, because if something is clear and it lacks an element of surprise, it runs the risk of being dull. No, we help clients create brand experiences that are simple and ultimately, importantly, I think, particularly today, reduce the cognitive load on the user or the customer. If, the, if we and if companies, and you know this so well from your product experience as well, Justin, if you're thoughtful about a customer journey and really walk empathetically in the customer or user's shoes, you get to a place of much more warmth with the customer and loyalty. And it's the opposite of this cognitive load and the friction that customers so often have to endure with brand experiences. I think that's a very important point to make. We are inundated today by images, by concepts, by ideas. And there are so many things that, that are vying for our attention. The ability to reduce something to a simple concept, but I love what you say, to a surprising concept, it can be arresting. In this avalanche of, of images and concepts in which we live, that simple idea that breaks through, it can be arresting. And, and, and I agree with you. That is a a very powerful approach to, to branding or conveying any kind of a message. And there are a variety of tools that marketers can use to affect that change. The most obvious one is plain language, speaking plainly. Another tool that's often underappreciated, particularly in tech, is the use of design, whether it's iconography or other design elements that improve the customer experience and the communication of that. And what we have found over the years in studying this is that customers reward it. Specifically, the um, users or people, as I prefer to call them, people are more likely to recommend a brand that has a simpler experience. They are more likely and more willing to pay a premium for that. And when we look at the brands that perform best in our simplicity index, they also, of the publicly traded companies, outperform others on the stock market indices, which is to say simplicity pays. That's counterintuitive. You would think that people would want to spend more money on the things that are more complicated, have more bells and whistles. And yet we all know that we are willing to hand over a premium to Apple and they've streamlined their user interface. They've streamlined all of the language about that. Um, so, so I think that's one where marketers do need to be bold and brave. We'll talk about that in a minute, by the way, and, and really acknowledge how conventional wisdom breaks down that, that more is better and more expensive. You know, you're so right. And the most obvious lessons maybe can be gleaned from looking at the luxury sector the luxury product designers, the judgments they make on what to keep and what flourishes to eliminate from a product or packaging. Um, you know, simplicity is the ultimate luxury. It is the degree of elegance in the experience. But the, the, the real gorgeous comment I would make here is that the genius of the simplifier is to know what to remove and what to keep. And that's that's the exercise. And that's where genius exhibits itself. And Apple may well be one of the best examples of that. We've talked a little bit about brands. Can you share your perspective on how this idea of a brand has evolved over the decades and where we are at this moment in time? Certainly. When brand was originally conceived, and for many decades, 
it was understood in plain language to be words and pictures, the logo, the strap line. I would offer today, Justin, that brand is about experiences. And that's a very meaningful evolution. It means that when you think about brand, I often define it in its most rudimentary and traditional terms, it's a promise kept. Well, what does that mean very practically? I'll go somewhere a little unexpected, Justin. I'll go to the work of Clayton Christensen, whom you know as a Harvard professor when we were in business school. And Clayton wrote a book um, some years since entitled, or the premise of which was, What's the Job to be Done? Although that book has nothing to do with branding, I find it a useful question because what is the job a brand has to do? And that job varies depending on the stage of a funnel. So in the front of the funnel, the awareness stage, the brand has the job of it has to stand out. It has to be memorable. It has to help you make a choice when you go to that supermarket and pick something off the shelf. Then as the customer or person moves along that funnel, the job changes. In the next stage, it may need to serve as a tiebreaker when selecting among different product or offerings. Then at subsequent stages, when the customer is a user, et cetera, it can serve as a, a mechanism for advocacy and for, for promoting. And for in some sectors, the person seeing their own identity as part of the brand, I'm an Apple user, is core to a lot of people's identity. So thinking about a brand from that frame of what is the job to be done is a useful way to making brand very tangible. And it takes it from the poetry. We talked about poetry earlier. It takes it from art and poetry into very practical actions, which is that moving from words and pictures to customer experience. On that topic of experience, you've done some innovative things at uh, Siegel and Gale. One I wanted to talk about are these branding panels that you're organizing. Tell us a little bit about what those are and how they came to be. So today I host the Future of Branding series at Siegel & Gale. They are uh, web, of course, these days, they're web events, happen every few weeks. We typically have five CMOs from a range of industries, and we have different themes, as you would expect, from experience to creativity to B2B, et cetera. How they came to be was essentially a pivot last year on the back of COVID. So previously, I would go around the world together with my colleagues and host roundtable luncheons in different cities. Then COVID came along. And back to that community comment, I recognized there was a need to create community among marketers, that we were all struggling with issues around communication and activation of brands internally and externally. And I realized that an asset that I had that I could share with the community was relationships with many marketers. And one of the silver linings, of course, of the COVID context amid all the struggle and all the heartache is that it largely erased geographic boundaries. So I could get five CMOs from different parts of the world together to discuss an issue. I've done that for probably about 100 different CMOs as guests in the last year. And all of the conversations are available to the entire community on how CMOs commit podcast. And I made the decision into this process together with my team, not to take a very uh, territorial viewpoint of these are our relationships. If I make this available publicly, perhaps competitors or others would know who they are. I took a different posture. My posture was this is a long-term game. We're all trying to build community. We're all trying to be in this together. Why don't I share, not limit the audience to prospective Siegel and Gale clients, but anyone in marketing who's grappling with issues? And I believe that served us well. And I've been truly honored and humbled by how many people have shown up to these panels and also the gracious CMOs who've accepted my invitations. We typically have hundreds to over a thousand guests on any given panel. And then, of course, as I say, we share the recordings on the podcast as well. 
Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. We've had a similar experience at People AI. We're running panels for CMOs and CROs. One of the controversial positions we took early on is there would be no presentations, there would be no vendor pitches. It was an opportunity to come in and unscripted have conversations about what was top of mind. I think we live in an era where people really respect that and in fact actually expect that. And they're very, we're all very attuned to is this an authentic moment where I can have a conversation or is this a pitch? And the pitches more and more are falling by the wayside. And the opportunities to meet, to connect, to take ideas to the next level, that's really what people value today. I think you're right. And there's something else that's important that I should mention for your listeners, but it's also something, if I may say so, that I'm I'm quite proud of, but yet recognize there's a lot of work to be done. And that is around the composition of the panels. I'll I'll tell your listeners a story in the spirit of learning and, and shared experience. About four years ago, I was in Boston hosting one of these panels as a luncheon. And I was quite pleased with the conversation. I had a panel of five CMOs, good representation across different industries. I had a, I think I had three women in addition to myself and two gentlemen, and a very rich and robust conversation. And I returned to my desk to find an email from one of our guests. And the email said to me, Margaret, thank you for the invitation to the luncheon. The food was delicious and the hospitality wonderful. But if you think the future of branding was represented in your panel today, you are sorely mistaken. Your panel consisted of five white executives. And that email struck me with with such weight. My initial reaction was to be quite defensive, quite honestly. I said, we're a commercial business. Why is it my responsibility to um, solve for these things? I invited five people I knew. I invited you to the conversation. The sender of the email was a CMO, a man of color. He didn't contribute to the conversation. And I sort of, in my defensive posture, thought, well, why didn't you speak up? You were in the room. You're an executive. And then after I had that first moment of defensive reaction, I paused and I said to myself, you know what, that is the most helpful piece of constructive feedback I've received in my career. And I called my colleagues into the room and we had a conversation and I asked my team, hold me accountable. I will never host a panel again that's solely five white executives. I was proud of what we had done on gender because I'd been focused on that. I had completely paid no attention to uh, representation from race. I was just oblivious to that. Now, four years later, hosting all of these panels virtually, I'm really pleased to say that it's still work to make sure we have representative panels. And it's still not easy and we're still not done. But I'm very proud to be able to call on people of different ethnic backgrounds to make sure these panels are more representative. And and I think it's important to say that in the context of marketing conversations, it's really important for folks to see role models who come from different backgrounds. And the irony of it is myself as an immigrant wasn't paying enough attention to that. And I should have been. I was so caught up on focused on gender. I missed the point. And the final punchline of the story, I suppose, is last year, I was in Boston again at another event. The truth teller, my guest, showed up and I took him aside and I thanked him and I asked him why he invested in me in such a way. And he appreciated the characterization as investing as opposed to giving me negative feedback. But he said, well, Margaret, a few months previous to that, someone took me aside and said, I was doing great work in the community as a man of color and as an executive, but I had completely neglected the LGBTQ community. So he was passing on his learning. And to a large degree, that story means a lot to me because it speaks back to our whole theme around community. 
and sharing learnings and being open to each other's inputs and also the humanity of being recognizing I was defensive, but also trying to grow from that and being vulnerable and recognizing the work's not done, but feeling the need, even in this conversation, to point out the importance of representation. Well, that's a wonderful comment. I think that most of us today aspire to live in a world where diverse points of view, diverse individuals all have equal time on the stage. What I find remarkable about your story, though, is that you made a commitment. And what you were doing is not simply saying, I'll make sure that we send the invites out to to other people. There was work that was required. I'm sure that the workload on you to make sure that there was a diverse panel represented every time, maybe it increased by 25%, by 30%. There was some material increase, though. And your willingness to take action and not simply say words, that I think is what really made the difference. I hope so. And also to recognize we're never done. In a couple of weeks, I'm hosting a panel entitled The CMO and the Silver Economy. And I'm inviting five CMOs and their parents to talk about ageism in marketing. And it also, while it's the right thing to do, it's also good, I believe, for Siegel and Gale. Because we're talking all the while about how we help companies build brands. Well, you build brands for the market that you serve, and we're all learning in that process. So it's a win-win, truly. So, Margaret, you recently served as the chair of the New York chapter of the Marketing Society. I know that one of the themes for the Marketing Society is be brave. I'd love for you to maybe expand on that idea a little bit. Certainly. So the Marketing Society is a global organization, been around 60 years across the world, has membership and primarily programming through events. And I was invited to chair the organization for two years, specifically the New York Hub. And it has been a privilege to think about marketing through the lens of bravery and also curate speakers for our programming that represent brave marketing. It's a really useful way to look at our profession. So we host a brave conference. I also hosted a variety of what we call uncomfortable conversations. Perhaps the most memorable one, I know we don't have much time, so I'll be ever so brief, was when I spoke with and interviewed for an audience, the CMO of CVS Health. And that company's story of bravery, the decision to remove tobacco from the drugstores and incur a $2 billion revenue hit was a remarkable story of bravery. And the fact that ultimately now years later, we look back, that paved the way for the company to have a brand promise that is helping people on a path to better health. They sincerely felt it was inauthentic to have that promise yet sell tobacco while um, diseases induced by the use of tobacco was the number one preventable disease in the United States. Now, fast forward, that paved the way for the combination with Aetna, Fortune 5 company today, and a really gorgeous example of how brave marketing can pay off. And to me, I enjoy the Marketing Society because that's a fresh lens at looking at our profession. There's a great quote, I think I've used it on the podcast before by uh, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk that says, the truth is undefeated. I love that idea. Great. Well, Margaret, we cannot finish this conversation without talking a little bit about wearing Irish. I'm intrigued by the concept. Tell us a little bit about what wearing Irish is all about and where it came from. Thank you. So wearing Irish is a passion project. I started five years ago now, and the premise of it was to help Irish designers get access and exposure to the U.S. market. I invite your listeners to check out the website as well as Wearing Irish on Instagram. It started with me wearing Irish fashion. And then a couple of years ago, through the generous sponsorship of a variety of organizations, hosting a competition where 10 Irish designers were selected to come to New York and display their wares in front of potential buyers. Uh, Some great success stories, including 
one designer being discovered by the United Nations and advancing that brand, another being picked up by Bloomingdale's, and all of them getting direct to consumer access that never was available to them before. And what's exciting for me about that was I gave some thought to how could I make a difference? And I felt it philanthropically speaking. And I felt that I couldn't make a truly meaningful difference in my ability to contribute financially to anything. But I realized I had a platform. I could convene an audience and I had access. And through bringing those qualities together, I thought an interesting exercise to um, share that essentially with the Irish designers. And now the conversation is a much richer one. And there's a lot more enthusiasm, even in the country of Ireland, for supporting local designers. I think about that little girl growing up in a rural community and recognizing that she was part of something greater and finding self-esteem and worth from, from that association. And as we've talked, I've seen that thread being pulled through your early career and even what you're doing today. And I just think about how much richer your life has been because of the associations that those communities have brought, brought, have brought into your life. I believe you're exactly right. And I think my obligation is to pay that back by contributing to those communities and by sharing those riches, to use your metaphor, with others. And it's, it's really manifest in networking and opening your networks, taking a long-term view. I think that's another important thing that's worth reflecting on, that building community and accumulating assets is a long-term play. And I don't mean monetarily. I mean it relationship assets, relationship equity, and then being able to share that equity with others. Well, Margaret, it's been a wonderful conversation I thought I'd end on one final question. If you were to look back across your life and had to boil it down to one thing, what is that one thing that you feel has made the most difference for you? Curiosity, being curious, curious about yourself, which speaks to reflecting on experiences, curious about others, which speaks to leading with questions, curious about issues, because I've learned that when you're curious, you're not judging. Curiosity and judgment can't coexist. And I sincerely think the older I'm getting, the funnily enough, and hopefully the more knowledge I'm accumulating, the more curiosity matters and the more curious I'm becoming. So I think it's all about, for me personally, curiosity. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for your thoughts. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.